Hi, my name is Sarah Rachel Brown. I'm a 30-something-year-old woman, and I live in Philadelphia. I'm a contemporary jeweler. And like many others, I am an artist trying to make a living. On this podcast, I'm going to broach the subject of value. I'll be talking to studio artists and performers, educators and administrators, and anyone else attempting to combine their creative endeavors with how they get a paycheck. Melanie, Sierra, Cloda. Three names with one thing in common. Since my last episode, they've all become a patron of Perceived Value through Patreon, and I appreciate that so, so much. You know, there are benefits to being a patron of Perceived Value. For example, today's guest is someone I greatly admire, and our conversation was so good that I hardly noticed that it went on for almost two hours. But as my podcast coach would advise, I'm keeping my interviews to an hour tops. So that extra audio of an incredibly insightful conversation, it's going to be released on my Patreon and exclusively available to my patrons. For as little as $1 a month, you can become a patron and have access to the second part of today's discussion. And merch. I recently added some merch. Visit ProceedValuePodcast.com or Patreon.com slash ProceedValue. All the links you need are in the description of this podcast. This past spring, I was scrolling on Instagram, as one too often does these days, and I saw some disheartening news. It was an announcement sharing the plan to close a graduate program in craft history and theory. And although I am not a traditional academic, my heart still hurts when I hear of colleges and universities closing their craft programs. It's the same way I felt when I was in high school, and funding just kept getting cut from my choral and arts programs. And in my teens, show choir and musical theater gave me an outlet that I desperately needed. Now, as a grown woman, craft is where I found community and a passion to pursue. Most of my guests on this podcast stem from my experiences in craft. So when a program closes, it feels like a punch to the gut. From my limited perspective, and I say limited because I don't know the full extent of why these decisions are made, but my assumption is that it all comes down to money. But I'm also not one for assumptions. I prefer to go straight to the source, which brings me to today's guest. She is a writer, educator, and curator based in Portland, Oregon. She serves as the founding director of the MA in Critical Craft Studies at Warren Wilson College, the first and only low residency program focused on craft histories and theory. She co-founded Critical Craft Forum, a celebrated online and on-site platform for dialogue and exchange. Namita Gupta Wiggers served as a curator and then chief curator and director of Museum of Contemporary Craft, PNCA, for 10 years. Prior experiences as a museum director, design researcher, studio jeweler, and life as an American of South Asian heritage also shape her research and writings on craft and culture. To put it quickly, she is accomplished and experienced. 
And I am extremely grateful for Namita's willingness to come on the podcast and discuss the closure of a program that she put years of work into creating and running. It's easy to discuss one's accomplishments, which in Namita's case, there are many, but it's quite another thing to share a setback, something that you might not be so thrilled about. That takes a special kind of vulnerability and humility. So please welcome today's guest, Namita Gupta Wiggers. That would be a good reason to put both names in. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I answer, some people call me Rachel, some people call me Sarah, um, or they use all three, and I love everything. Well, you're kind of that way too, Namita. Like, I don't ever, I don't think I ever refer to you as just Namita. I say Namita Gupta Wiggers. It's like such a good name. <laughs> you know, like it rolls off your tongue. So um, I also do that. So. <laughs> well, when I did jewelry, I had my whole name just a banner with just my name on the back mm-hmm. and it looks really cool graphically because there's a lot of angles and then right. a couple of really good curves with the G's oh, and so yeah. like as a as a design thing it was like ooh, I like how that looks but yeah. yeah it's so funny because you know when I interviewed you on behalf of snag that was mm, 2016 I believe um, I think it might have been later. I think it might have been 19. Oh, yeah. What am I talking about? I was already doing the podcast and I started the podcast in 2017. Wow, Sarah. Um, but we didn't really talk about your history. Um, I guess I didn't really understand that you were a jeweler jeweler until yes. on my outline you noticed that. Um which fascinates me and also makes me very happy because you're somebody I look up to in the craft field so much. And I'm like, oh, she's one of us. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, awesome. Um, And also really makes me happy when I learn somebody that is, I would call you, you know, a primary like scholarly figure within the craft field. And the fact that you were a maker makes me really happy. Um, because, you know, at your heart and soul, like you were in a studio doing it, trying to make a living off your creativity. Yeah. Um, and I think that just really informs it sometimes. And I don't think it's a bad thing, but sometimes I am like little taken back a little when I like at craft organizations, people that are working there are really involved, have like never actually been a craftsperson or worked with their hands. And I'm that's so bad to say out loud, but I can't help it. It's true. <laughs> but um, I get yeah. it. I get it. And and this is actually, it's interesting because it's something that comes up um, sometimes in our program. Um, mm-hmm. Shall I just continue? I'm assuming yeah, you're recording. Yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I, I usually go with like a, a casual roll in. Well, I guess, Super. you know, maybe we'll do, let's say hello to listeners. Hi, listeners. How are you? <laughs> um, so I'm sitting here with Nimita Gupta-Wiggers. Now, Nimita, um, we have prepared for this conversation in many ways. I'm very excited. Um, you know, you're somebody whose career could be like a five part podcast series, um, in terms of (laughs) (laughs) diving into every angle. Um, and I just want to like put out there that I really am so thankful that you're willing to discuss maybe not the most shiny, beautiful part of your career at the right now. Um, because, I don't know. Can you relate to this? Like when you're, it feels really nice when like somebody that you look up to or a mentor shows you like their early work 
and you're like, oh, we all start somewhere or all oh, we all have failures or not that this is a failure, but like, you know what I'm saying? Does that make I sense? do. I do. Okay. And it's, it's interesting because I'm doing a, I'm going to speak to the MFA in Applied Craft and Design class on Wednesday. It's a mm-hmm. program that um, started at Oregon College of Art and Craft and PNCA and is now at PNCA slash Willamette University. And they wanted me to come in and talk. And I said, you know, I think what I'd like to do is to bring an essay that I'm working on and show the parts and pieces and talk about it in process. Said so because mm-hmm. what I feel happens so often, and I, I think this happens a lot when we do, you know, the way that, that our art schools are structured, you bring in somebody who is well-known in their field. They give their mm-hmm. artist talk. They talk yeah. about their trajectory, but they, they're showing the work that has been recognized in some way that has already been out in the public. And then they do studio crits and there isn't anything that helps somebody understand how you go from being a student really to getting that first opportunity to turning those opportunities into the next opportunity. And I feel like that that's a really, that's a really big gap. And it's a place where in terms of professional practices, um, I think there's an opportunity to help people understand. Also, when people mm-hmm. talk to me about writing, I mean, they say, what do you, you know, how do you feel about being a writer? I'm like, I like having written. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, that's what I like. <laughs> I relate so, to that. I relate with that the podcast. I'm like, I love when the podcast is released. <laughs> do I like sitting <laughs> in a room editing? No, absolutely no. not. No, yeah. and I think it's so helpful for people to understand that we all struggle. If if I write something and there aren't tears somewhere along the way and frustration that I'm not getting it where I want it, then yeah. um, I know I'm not finished and the piece needs to be continued to be worked on. Oh, yes to that so much. So, yes, and you're um, not – you're going to be like a little experiment for me because I do have so many things I want to talk to you about and we're going to focus on one aspect today. But um, listeners, part two of my conversation with Namita is going to be available to my patrons on Patreon. So you're going to get this full conversation today, but then the bonus episode will be behind a bit of a paywall, which, you know, for even a dollar a month, you can have access to that conversation. So it's still really accessible. Um, which is exciting. And I honestly, we don't really know what we're going to talk about for that part. So <laughs> it can go. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> we could talk about like, you know, cooking, your embroidery, anything. So you, you just, you got to sign up to find out. Um, so today, you know, I've been, I'm in a huge professional transition. And so that's kind of informing who I'm talking to and why I'm connecting with people. And I think when I saw the Facebook or the post announcing the closure of your program that you've helped create at Warren Wilson College, my heart just kind of hurt because every time you see the closure of a program or a school or a museum, you're just like, okay, another one bites the dust. What's left now? Um, In a field that we're already striving so hard to document and nurture and grow Um, so can you introduce yourselves or introduce the program, what it is and what you've been working on the past five years with it? Sure. So the program is the MA in critical craft studies, 
at Warren Wilson College, and it is the it's a low residency program, um, and that means that we meet for a short period of time in a two week intensive, and then the semester continues after that for the regular kind of thing you'd expect in academia of, you know. 14 to 16 weeks and and so forth. Uh, It's a two-year plus one residency program. And uh, the focus is on critical craft studies. So there are a number of programs in, well, I shouldn't say a number, there are a few programs in the United States that focus on aspects of craft. Um, Bard College, Winterthur, University of Wisconsin has material studies. Delaware has material studies. There are a number of places where you can go and get connected to craft as connected to decorative arts or material culture or art history. This program starts from craft itself, and we take a very broad understanding of craft. So it's not just craft that's going to end up in museums. we actually ask a different question. We say, which craft do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk about tourist craft or studio craft or domestic craft or uh, queer craft? Which craft do you want to talk about? And that determines what kind of research tools you need in order to be able to investigate the questions and the subject that you're trying to understand. So it's really a program to give tools to think about craft, <clears throat> excuse me, to give people tools to think about craft and to investigate and research on their own um, and to take that forward when they leave the program. Oh, wow. A few years ago, I got nominated to apply. It's funny, you have to be nominated to apply to the Emerging Voices um, for the American Craft Council Award. And I remember the hardest question I had, which was, what is craft? And I was like, ah, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think it'd be so hard. I was like, I don't know. I just, it's its my life. It's my community. Can I just say that? You know, I don't think I wrote anything profound when you mentioned, I know when I'm crying or whatever, I know I've like finished it. I've gotten there. I never felt that with that application. Um, yeah. Oh, that's so I, interesting. Mm-hmm. And I that's could tell so that it wasn't good. Like when I did my core fellowship application, I felt it. I felt it in my gut. Like I cried. I put everything into it and I didn't have the same feeling. Um, because it's hard to define, I mean, it's hard to define craft in terms of like thinking about however people view it. I don't know. I understand why there's a whole program about this. Well, and if you define it tightly, you create a box, you create Mm -hmm. something with walls that people can push back on and say, no, it's not that. And then you have to defend yourself. And so it becomes trapped in the same kind of academic game that has always happened of this person's right, this person's wrong, here's why, here's why not. And I'm not interested in reinforcing and reinscribing that. I'm more interested in having Mm -hmm. a broader conversation that speaks to complexity and depth and breadth. Craft is long. We've been doing craft as long as people started to put things on their body to cover themselves um, so that they didn't get cold. Um, If we take a different view of craft, then it opens up all these other possibilities. And then you can actually examine, okay, what does it mean to be involved as a small scale jeweler in, Mm -hmm. you know, working out of your home as opposed to a jeweler working for 
Swarovski creating pieces that are sold in a more production oriented way. And then you can have mm -hmm. a different kind of conversation. And I'm more interested in that conversation than I am figuring out which one is actually craft or not. I like that. I appreciate that. And so with that in mind, you were the founding director of this program. Now, what does that mean <laughs> in terms of that? <laughs> um, well, yeah. so what it, what that means is that I was responsible, or I am responsible because I'm still I'm still in the position until June of 23. Um, I am responsible for shaping the program, mm -hmm. so figuring out curriculum, hiring all the faculty, the workshop faculty, teaching fellows, do you know, choosing the students from the applications. Teaching, which was not part of my job description, but I have ended yeah. up teaching two, three loads almost every single year in mm -hmm. order to shape the program and make it what it, it needed to be. Yeah. Um, I'm responsible for all the administrative side of things, but I'm really responsible for creating what the program is. And mm -hmm. um, that comes through curriculum and who you choose to bring into the community from faculty to students to continue this conversation and to think through the questions together. So as someone who has been really uh, thinking about my career goals and objectives, I mean, this sounds like a very dreamy job. Did you go to Warren Wilson College and say, hey, I have this idea, would you be willing to work with me? Or did they approach you saying, we want a program such as such? Well, what actually happened is there was a think tank that the Center for Craft put together with Warren Wilson College in 2016. And at the time, I was working independently. I was doing a lot mm -hmm. of curatorial work, writing, public speaking, uh, workshops, things like that on my own. So I wasn't I didn't have a formal institutional affiliation. However, I was serving on the board at the Center for Craft. And so oh, working... Can I interject real quick? Because yeah. I don't want to assume that people know what the Center for Craft is. Can oh, you tell yeah, them where explain. Warren Wilson and Center Craft are? Absolutely. So Center for Craft is located in Nashville, North Carolina, and it's been around for more than two decades. It is the place in the country where you can find support through funding for grants and through grants and things like that for craft research and um, craft research there is everything from um, support for writing books and things like that to mm -hmm. material based research so it can it's it's got opportunities for everyone involved in craft from curators to scholars to makers to craftspeople to um, you know people who are getting started in the field for the for the first time. There's a lot of opportunities. And Warren Wilson College is located um, just half an hour outside of Asheville in Swannanoa, North Carolina, so in the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. And yeah. are they officially affiliated together? No. This was a partnership. Um, this okay. was a program that was um, – the think tank came out as a partnership because Warren Wilson College at that time had just finished a grant uh, cycle with a funder and with Wingate Foundation. And um, one of the things that they wanted was to create a master's program. And uh, they wanted to have uh, an opportunity to think through if this was a good idea, what the possibilities were, where it could go, how it could differentiate itself from other kinds of things going on out in the world and so forth. So they worked with the Center for Craft and Maryland's app 
um, to create a think tank. And I was on the board and worked very closely with Marilyn through the education committee. So we put together a think tank. And from that think tank, that uh, you can find the think tank online if you go to the Center for Craft or if you go to uh, the Warren Wilson page uh, focused on the MA in craft studies and because it's all public. Okay. And, and I can link that, guys. Oh, great. Great. I'll make sure I'll make sure and get you that. Um, but basically what came out of it was the idea that there was a possibility of doing a master's program. Um, and I walked away thinking this is great. And I wrote a four page letter of what I thought the possibilities were of doing something that was a different kind of craft program than what I was seeing happening in schools. Sent that to Warren Wilson, sent that to Marilyn. And when they announced the position, uh, it turned out that they were willing to have it be a low residency position, not just a low residency program, but to allow the person who was directing the program to reside off campus and basically come in a couple of times a year to administer the the face-to-face portions and work with administration. So that gave me the chance to stay in Portland continue Mm -hmm. doing some of the kind of other work that I was doing on my own of traveling around and speaking and things and still be able to uh, do this full-time plus job uh, in a remote situation. Yeah. So then did, so you technically had to apply to be able to become the director then? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yes. You planted the seed, but you still had to apply. I like that. Definitely, definitely. Um, I don't know how many applications they received, but I know that there were several people who interviewed, and yeah. um, and then uh, I I was fortunate to be selected. And and you know, I'll tell you when I did the application, I went all out. I thought, you yeah. know, I I know what I wanted when I was in school, and I wanted a program that recognized the globe, that recognized craft and making across the world. And I also wanted a program that brought critical race theory into the structure of the program itself. So I put together a proposal that was pretty direct. And that's, that's basically what ended up becoming the program. They accepted me, they accepted my proposal, and that's what we put into action. Before we move forward, I, um, I would really like if you could share your pronouns and describe yourself to listeners as well, because um, we didn't do that. And I think that's also a really great aspect to kind of point out as someone being put in that position and leading these conversations. Sure. Uh, So I use she, her pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, And I am the daughter. I'm American born. I was born in Mm -hmm. Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm the daughter of uh, immigrants from India. I grew up in Ohio, in Jersey, in Texas, and I've also lived in Chicago and Portland. Uh, So I've lived in lots of different places. Um, My being uh, of Indian heritage is very important to me, and it's something that surprisingly has not been a part of my craft world experiences in studio craft. So um, this program was a way for me to try to create a space for more parts of myself to be visible. Um, There are no, right now, there are no uh, directors or leaders of craft institutions or programs in the country 
that are of uh, my Asian heritage uh, at this time. I'm the first South Asian in the United States to direct a non-collecting, to direct a collecting art museum that was not ethnically specific. And that was when I was at Museum of Contemporary Craft. So my background is coming from lots of different places and different Mm -hmm. kinds of experiences that come together. And I always like to ask, may I ask what your age is? Sure. I'm 55. Okay. Because, I mean, for me, when I listen to conversations as we're talking about when someone has an artist talk and they're like, I've done all these things. And I'm like, I'm 37. What have I done with my life? Um, It's nice to have that like insight, right? Um, Absolutely. Like I would say like in your 50s, you're making this profound work happen. And it's exciting to see. It's exciting for me to think about what I can accomplish in the future still. Because I think there's a lot of doom and gloom about like, if you haven't made it by a certain age or something like that. Um, It's something I think about. (laughs) Well, Sarah, this is something we should share then that um, I started out in museum education and then I transitioned to, I went back to graduate school and I was working on my PhD. I left that and worked for a product design firm doing video ethnography and research for thinking about user behavior. I left that to become a studio jeweler. And I left studio jewelry when I became a mom because I didn't want the chemicals. And and I had had been miscarrying and um, we wanted to be sure that, that we kept a safe environment. So from, I stayed home with my kids for five years. It was the mm. hardest thing I've ever done. Um, I had an amazing garden at that time because that's where I poured <laughs> all my creative energy. Right, um, right, right. And it was not cleaning the house because I have no interest in that. Um, but <laughs> I, I didn't start I had never curated when I got my position at the museum, and I'd never run a graduate program when I got this position. Um, I taught as an adjunct, but um, I was 37 when I got that job at the Museum of Contemporary Craft in 2004, and um, I was 50 when I got this position. So, um, yeah. I think and I that- love that you <laughs> had never curated when you got that job. That is so cool to hear. <laughs> No, never had curated a thing. I worked in yeah. museums. I mean, we worked in a children's museum in Houston, and I worked as the uh, museum educator at the Blaffer Gallery for three years, and I started a program that is still there and has changed a lot since I, I started it, but it was called UH Reach, and it was a focus on high school students and mm. connecting high school students to uh, to the museum and to the art um, the idea of art education and pursuing an education at a college level. Um, but no, I'd never, I'd never curated anything, but mm-hmm. um, I grew up going to museums and spent a lot of time thinking about them. I didn't even know there was a job called curator until I got to, 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 till I started studying art history. I never really, <laughs> I, I went to museums my whole life and I had no idea how things got there. They just, I just didn't yeah. think about it. And there was no one in my world who was ever saying, this is how things happen. And this is how these these uh, take place. And we knew people who were artists. They were painters um, yeah. but and photographers. But nobody 
in my world ever did that as a job. So I didn't even know it existed until yeah. I got to, to, to Rice, to Rice University. Oh, I love that. It's like the first time I ever exhibited work was my end of year show for my first year at the fellowship at Penland. And I hung all my work up and I felt so proud and like nervous because I'd never done it before. And I think I was the only one in the group that had it. And then someone walked over and they're like, oh, um, is everything 60 to center? And I was like, what does that mean? And I... <laughs> had this like total breakdown because they all like assumed I understood like how you like hang things in a gallery and I've never heard 60 to center and I totally cried and then had to like rehang things um I love that I love that okay so getting so back I'll, ooh, I just have yeah. to tell you we didn't we didn't do 60 to center we did 58 <gasps> oh wow okay so yeah. you really could do whatever you want. I also like, I did throw a little bit of a fit. There were some necklaces I didn't move. <laughs> and I was like, I'm the artist. I want my necklaces to hang here. <laughs> I just left them. Absolutely. And I believe that at some point, that's where museums have to stop and say, okay, let's let's figure out what the issue is. That 60 to center doesn't have to be the the standard. And it's, yeah. it's yeah. Yeah. seems arbitrary. I don't want to do it. And also, I don't like the math. I don't like doing the math. Um, <laughs> so that is amazing. So you apply, you get the job. Oh, thank God you're not like an um, old white man in his 60s. Thank you. Um, <laughs> please. And, I appreciate uh, that every day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Shout out to Namita. Um <laughs> So, wow. Okay, so, but then it sinks in that you get this job. Um, and the, probably the, like, where do you even start? Like, where did you start creating the program at? It seems overwhelming. Oh, it's such a good question. You start with the people you know are ready to experiment. And you start with um, looking at, you know, I knew that I wanted to have a certain kind of curriculum, and that's what's in place. I wanted a history and theory track. I wanted a materials lab track where people would think about and experiment with what materials are and materiality. Um, and then I wanted a research methods lab where it wasn't just let's teach people how to research, but let's teach, teach people how to apply what they're reading and thinking because mm -hmm. that's what artists don't have and craftspeople don't have. They, they read things and they, they know how to bring it into themselves and put it yeah. back out through their work. But being a historian or a theorist is about bringing it in, thinking about it and putting it back out there into a really different kind of conversation. So I wanted mm -hmm. to create that. And then I wanted it the, uh, to be a track that was um, called Practicum, not a thesis. This is not a thesis. This okay. is a practicum. It is an application of the research methods that people have learned to the subject and the questions, the research question that somebody is trying to understand. And it's uh, most of them have taken the form of a, of a paper, an extended paper. Uh, a couple of people have done exhibitions, but mm. um, and this year one person will be doing a film. Um, so oh, that's um, cool. Yeah, so they could do yeah. whatever they want. It didn't have to be a paper. It didn't have to be a paper, but I think it would be fair to say that writing is the primary way we teach people how to convey what they're doing. Words are, words are the primary tool and medium for expressing mm -hmm. 
thinking in this pro- kind of a program. So right. the person who's doing the um, the person who's doing the the film is writing a paper also. Right, right. And I thought about you know I kind of daydreamed about this type of program sounded like something that for the first time in my life in some ways I thought oh I think I could flourish in that like maybe that's something that I should do and. I I played around with the idea of like how I would do a podcast series for it, but I write my scripts. Like I think people think I'm a little much, a bit more on the cuff than I am, but I mean, I'm sure you saw my outline. I do a lot of research and my introductions are written scripts. So that's, if I did it, I would do it. Oh, yeah. yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, One of the students came in thinking that they were going to do podcasts and they ended up doing an exhibition using sound recordings. It was Michael, Michael mm-hmm. Hatch did an exhibition uh, and um, looking at Appalachian craft. So right. there's a way that what you're talking about and, 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 you know, Sarah, it's also really important too. I think that bringing up podcasts as part of research, I think is important to mention that in our program, we teach our students how to do oral histories and interviews and, how to think about listening and podcasts are considered as much a research tool as the written word in our program. Um, mm-hmm. Sitting at somebody's feet and listening to them tell a story is just as important. So this is a, a more expanded view of what constitutes research, what constitutes an archive. And so to get it started, you know, I needed I needed to find people who were going to be able to experiment mm-hmm. um, and also people who are willing to try to teach in a new format. Um, and the third thing is to be willing to teach collaboratively. So oh, over the yeah. course of the five years, our faculty, our core faculty, share our syllabi together. We review them together. We discuss how they connect together. Places where, you know, for example, one, you know, Tom Martin and Sarah Klugage are teaching about aesthetics, but they teach the same piece of writing in really different ways. Mm-hmm. And that's been, that's brilliant. And by knowing that each of them is doing this, it just strengthens the opportunity for the students to be able to make different kinds of connections because the faculty are aware of it. So this is not how teaching happens in academia. You know, you yeah. don't teach in front of your colleagues. It's very unnerving for some people, but it's something that I think comes from craft in that craft is about collaborative learning. It's about exchange. And I want academia to work that way too. So when I thought about, and we're discussing this program in depth because you are going to be transitioning out of this incredible program that you have created and the position that you've held the last five years because um, the school has decided to, or announced that they're closing the program, correct? Correct. And so that is why we're talking about it, which is a little sad because the more I learn about it, the more excited I get. Um, <laughs> and remind me, I want to circle back and maybe this is bonus footage, but I do want to talk. I tried to apply for grant. I wanted to do the research grant application for the Center for Craft and Design, but um, there were some barriers in it for me in terms of like how to apply as like a podcaster. Remind me, I want to ask your opinion on that because I think you could give me some really exciting insights. Um, Sounds good. So when this program, my first 
um, question that comes to mind is what was the intention beyond, of course, you know, teaching about craft and um, these ways of learning together and teaching together and collaboration. But when someone graduates with the degree, what could their career trajectory be um, in some different examples beyond just, you know, a professor? So it's a complicated question, and I think um, it's complicated because it has to do with place and local economies. Um, There are some students who have gone through the program, Matt Lambert being a great example, uh, who have gone on to further graduate studies, and Phoenix Booth also has gone on to further graduate studies. So we can prepare students for further work in academia if that's what they want, and we can get them, help them prepare for that. We also have other students like Mike Hatch, who lives in, in uh, uh, Weaverville, which is a little, which is closer to Penland yep, in North Carolina. And Mike has been on the board of the Southern Highland Craft Guild for a number of years. Mike is not, le- and is a glassblower. Mike mm-hmm. is not leaving Weaverville. Mike is right. not taking this this master's degree and doing all this work in order to find a new job in a new city. Mike is doing it in order to add to his own learning and skills and tools to figure out what to do to document local histories. So, okay. and I think, um, I think by the time this podcast comes out, it's okay to say that Mike just received um, the position of archivist at the Southern Highland Craft Guild. So here's a great example of somebody who was using the archive, researched in the archive, created a project through the program, and learned how to do something to then be able to do that kind of a position in addition to his glass blowing work as well. Yeah. Um, Other people are using it to develop writing skills. And um, we have a couple of students who are interested in, they don't want to lose their studio work. Every single one of our students, by the way, has craft in their lives. Um, Not all of them have BFAs or MFAs, but they all have making. And that's, that's, Mm -hmm. I think, an important thing to to understand in terms of who is doing this work and then what kind of positions are open for them. So they're applying it where they live. There are also students who, like Sarah Kelly, who was able to secure the Wingate Curatorial Fellowship for curating at Arizona State University after a a Wingate Fellowship at the Asheville Art Museum. And so she's been able to move through different curatorial roles in that regard as well. So it's a long answer. It's no, a, it's it's a long answer, but I think it's because what's complicated is that the structures and systems in how we understand a degree to work is that the degree opens up a platform for you to move to something else. Right. And I think that this degree offers that for some people, and it also offers the opportunity for you to deepen and strengthen what you're already doing where your feet are hitting the ground. Mm-hmm. And that local focus, I think, connects to um, something really important that gets overlooked a lot in terms of, you know, what success post-graduation is supposed to look like. 
Yeah. 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 Um, also, Aaron Decker did it, right? No, Aaron. No, he didn't. Didn't end up doing it. He thought okay. about it and we talked a lot for several years, but he, he did not end up applying. Okay. 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 Um, so can we give insight to the financial aspects of the program for listeners? Sure. Um, because I mean, when a program closes, it's usually comes down to finances on the institution's part. And I'm going to make the assumption, although, you know, assumptions aren't good, um, that that had a big part to do with Warren Wilson's decision to close the program. Um, but can we start with by talking about how much the program costs for students to attend? Sure. The program began at $22,000 per semester plus uh, $4,000 for the residency. And okay. so the total cost would have been 22 plus 22 plus 4 plus 4 plus 2 for the final residency. Now the program costs 22500 The residency is 4310 and the culminating residency is 2000. So the total two-year program for the last three years is $55,720. So that's and for the full two years plus final residency. Okay. And then it's like any other program where people can apply for financial aid and scholarships? Or is financial aid is a little trickier because there aren't as many financial aid things offered for graduate programs, but there is okay. financial aid available. So everybody had the option to do that. Mm -hmm. And in terms of scholarships, we received support from the Wingate Foundation for scholarships. Uh, okay. But I will be honest with you, it's limited. It right. certainly didn't cover a full ride for anybody. Mm -hmm. Um we tried our best to give everybody um, something to help out, but, and some people were given higher amounts based on financial need and, and so forth and merit. Um, uh, but uh, it never covered the full amount in any way, shape or form. So as founding director, I mean, you're hiring people, you're, you are the visionary behind the program. How do you decide how much a program costs? That's not my decision. Oh. Yeah, that's not my decision. Uh, my, my role in that is to give the numbers to the, uh, ed, the people on campus who are supposed to be responsible for making those decisions. So okay. I did the research. I made a proposition, and then it was taken to – um, my boss at the time, who was the vice president for academic affairs and the vice president for enrollment and marketing and the CFO and, to, and the financial aid, uh, the person who was in charge of financial aid. And together, they were to vet and uh, determine the costs based on the research and the proposal that I made. Um I'm going to be honest with you that that process um, in this case um, didn't go as well and as smoothly as I think it could have. Okay. Um, and that was because of various administrative things going on on the campus. So the amount of the tuition, what ended up happening um, with the tuition hike that happened in 2020, 
uh, that ended up becoming the decision of the CFO, who is now no longer at Warren Wilson. She left the summer, but mm-hmm. she determined that it needed to be increased um, and made that change. So you launched this program and in the middle of it, the pandemic hit and the pandemic had a huge effect on everything, any small business, any academic program, et cetera. So um, can you speak to, in your, in your opinion, do you think that if the pandemic hadn't happened, that the program might've not been canceled? Do you think that that was something that like gravely affected um, it getting canceled? That's a great question. I think what didn't happen because of the pandemic is that I wasn't visiting conferences. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we met in person for the first time at, at the SNAG conference, the Society right, of North right. American Goldsmiths conference. Um, one of the biggest assets for marketing was my my connections through um, through the field. And I usually go to multiple conferences and um, that's a place where people see me and talk with me and ask me questions and find out what they need to know so that they can talk to their students and help their students apply and so forth. That all had to go online. And that was, I, I think, a big, um, a big hardship in terms of marketing and recruiting because I wasn't out there. Um, and that was really my primary responsibility. We had an admissions person who did, um, did a lot of support work, but that was a primary part of what I did was the marketing. I didn't even think about that. I don't even think I put that on your outline about marketing and how you were probably like the key aspect of it or ambassador for the program. Wow. Well, and Sarah, you know, in some ways, I think I had it better than a lot of people. I've talked to a lot of my colleagues who are chairs of programs, uh, craft-related programs, and yeah. um, this is a whole other topic that at some point you should you should <laughs> you should talk to more people like who <laughs> like who are, have these jobs and what they're doing. Yeah. And and no, I was responsible not just for the curriculum and hiring faculty and making sure and teaching and making sure that students were cared for and and, and planning and e- executing residencies, planning and executing all of the online semester courses. But I was responsible for the marketing. I, had, I was the contact for the fundraising folks um, who were supposed to be responsible for fundraising for us. I yeah. served on the graduate council. I worked with financial aid if they needed support and assistance. We do all of our own tracking of budget. Warren Wilson does not do quarterly profit and loss reports. So it means that we have to have a ghost budget that we manage our budgeting on. Uh, And there is an online system where the finance department uploads numbers and things, but coding takes a lot of time. And so it's never completely in sync. Uh, so we have to have a ghost budget that we run in order to make sure our expenses are staying on track. I worked with our marketing team um, to direct the look of our advertising. And I have to say, Ben Liniel is um, amazing and helped us develop the look for all of the marketing advertisements and materials. But then um, 
our program manager, Jesse Shires, and I were responsible for placing all the advertising. I run the Instagram. Jesse runs the quarterly newsletter and things like that. But those are all parts of the job in addition yeah. to, um, you know, directing <laughs> the curriculum. Good Lord. Uh, how'd you negotiate your salary? Like, did, was it a salary <laughs> that you we were like, oh, this is, I mean, you probably didn't have a lot of side hustles at this time. It doesn't seem like you'd have much time for anything, but. You know, let's just say that I'm a girl who doesn't say no really well. So I did right. have a lot of side hustles and side jobs. And, and that's an interesting thing we should talk about in terms of transition and right. why I do that. Um, and we, we should come back to that. But uh, the job, when I received the offer, I negotiated pretty hard. And that was because um, I, I asked for funds to have a research fund of $10,000 for research and development mm -hmm. with the idea that that would support any kind of um, books or resources or conference attendances and things like that that I would need to do to figure out, you know, if I'm trying to build a program that brings critical race theory and global perspective in, then I need to be places where I can find different faculty. It can't right. just be at the American Craft Council conferences or at SNAG or places like that. I need to go to other places. Right. Um, because those are predominantly white spaces and I need to go to places where I'm not going to be in only white environments. Yeah. Um, I also negotiated uh, a certain amount for travel so that I could go back and forth to the campus six times a year, including for both residencies uh, and then also some academic travel for marketing and going to conferences to promote the program and so forth. Um but I also pushed hard on, you know, if the position was one that I was, I was taking a, if I was, if I had been taking a museum job, mm -hmm. my salary would have been a certain kind of salary uh, based on my experience. And so I pushed hard to have a comparable salary and I was successful at that. And that's the first time I've really negotiated for something like that. And um, it felt really good. <laughs> good for you. Yeah. 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 Um, power negotiation, man. It's important. And I don't feel like we talk about it enough. Like I feel, I really struggle with that where I'm just, I feel like I've worked so hard and I just want these experiences so badly that it's hard not to just say yes immediately because you're so afraid that it could be taken away. Um, yes. And or that it's not going to happen again, right? You're afraid, oh, right. if I say no, they won't think of me again next time or it won't happen again. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Or somebody else will do it for cheaper. And yeah, especially with podcasting. I think people like really, um, I have, I have a hard time, uh, explaining the amount of work that goes into this and how valuable my time is for it. Um, so. Mm. I completely understand that. I think the hidden, the hidden labor of our field is something that needs to be discussed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So when did you first hear rumblings about, because I'm, I don't know how universities and schools or how your program specifically, how they, um, tracked its profitability or et cetera. Like were, did this university or college, sorry, tell you that you had to have X amount of people enrolled each time or, looking at how many applications you were receiving? Was that a way of them kind of quantifying its success? 
It's a great sense. question. Um, those are definitely metrics that I think everybody uses. I think that's pretty mm -hmm. common. In this situation, uh, it was clear that, well, we had a new provost come in um, in 2020. What's a provost? So the provost, as I understand it, is basically the person who's in charge of the academic side of things and, okay. um, it, you know, essentially runs. So before that, the position was vice president for academic affairs. Okay. Uh, the provost is tends to be more um, shaping vision for the president on and implementing initi new initiatives and, and takes, I think, more of a leadership role than perhaps a VP um, as a title would, would imply. Okay. I think that's what it is. I mean, I've only ever heard that term <laughs> on like an episode of the Gilmore Girls. So like, sure. Yeah, let's go with that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I mean, basically he's my boss and, okay. you know, and um, when he came on, I explained to him that uh, the program, when it was, when it was initiated, was vetted through faculty. So the faculty body had to vote on this program and say, yes, we want to have this come through. Um, mm -hmm. Partly so that the academic side of it is, is you know, that, that it's been vetted by your peers and your colleagues who are checking if the program is, is solid and so forth in terms of academic rigor. But also because knowing that that means that resources are going to get distributed in a certain way that brings this new program into, uh, into the fold. What did not happen is that this program did not get vetted through the administrative side of things. So when I arrived in 2017 uh, mm -hmm. for my very first campus meeting, it was the first time that, or it seemed to be the first time that the registrar, financial aid, the controller, and uh, the financial aid folks and certain people were learning that this program was going to be launched within a year. It was supposed to launch uh, January of 2019. Mm -hmm. There was a new president, Lynn Morton, who came in at, at the same time I did in 2017. And Lynn said, no, we can't wait. We have to launch it faster. So everything that was meant to be a year and a half of planning, vetting, getting everything ready meant that we had to launch the application that fall with all the information ready to go in order to secure a class to start in the fall of 2018. So it foreshortened the entire process. Right. So while the administration across the campus is figuring out what's going on, we're developing marketing materials and promotional materials and doing all of that at the same time. It wasn't, a, it was less than ideal. It was yeah. less than ideal. Sounds so a little, a little rushed. Um, <laughs> the good thing was we had already had our accreditation approved with zero comments or feedback, which I understand is is a big thing. Basically, you have to write up what the program is going to do. You send it to an accreditation uh, organization, and then they have to approve or not. They say, yes, you can do this program or not. 
ours came back with zero comments, which apparently doesn't happen very often. So the accreditation was a big thing also happening. So that's like the FDA for like a new drug to like put it in context of somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. That's totally a great analogy. Yeah. On your first trial, you got the vaccine approved, babe. This is great. (laughs) I like that. Oh, my God. I'm going to totally keep that story. That's a great way to talk about it. Um, So in some ways, we talk a lot about how we were flying the plane while we were building it at the same time. Yeah, that sounds stressful. It was it was a lot. It was a lot. So with that, to get to the question about admission and finances and enrollment and all of that. It was really clear the first year we had a lot of interest. Um, when the program was announced, it nearly broke the campus server because the activity was so much. Oh my and God. Um, it was the most wide, it is the most widely shared story from Warren Wilson College in their entire history. So mm-hmm. that first year, what happens is you get a lot of people who are risk takers and entrepreneurs who apply, right? Folks who are yeah saying, I want to I want to be on the ground. I want to try this. The second year, you have a plummet. And we mm. didn't get a whole lot of applications. And in speaking with colleagues, people like Lydia Matthews, who has founded a number of, um, of making-oriented and, and graduate programs, uh, and a number of other people, this is a common thing. And then you have an increase again the third year. Well, the right. thing is, the third year is when COVID hit. And so, yes, we had an increase, but it was a very different situation. And people were recognizing that their lives and their social world and then their academic world was all in this box. And that was really hard and it became very challenging. So to be more specific to your question, those were factors. It was really clear when the provost came on, I made it clear to him that we needed to have a more formalized business plan that was vetted through all the departments. Mm -hmm. So 2020 was crisis mode for the college to adapt to COVID. 2021 was crisis mode to adapt to the college. And, you know, every every small liberal arts college was is, is struggling financially, too. So there were things that were being addressed there. So what happened in 21 is I asked the provost to have a meeting with the senior cabinet, and we presented a plan that showed what the enrollment needed to be in order to break even and cover all our costs and turn a profit for the college at at some point. Unfortunately, that particular meeting also coincided with a Wingate report that needed to be delivered by the vice president of advancement. And I'm being very transparent and open here with you and with, with listeners, um, with a job that I still hold. (laughs) So I'm trying to be very careful in how I phrase all of this. And please do not say anything you even, Oh, I won't the slightest gut feeling about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, no, I won't. I won't. So what ended up happening is the meeting ended up shifting to the Wingate, both the 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 um, the Wingate write up and grant report, as well as the Wingate proposal that was going out next. And I spent the better part of the next several months repeatedly asking for a time to meet with the CFO, and never got right. it. Um, I tried to 
emphasize that enrollment was not my responsibility. It was the responsibility of the admissions department and that they needed support. They needed help. They needed marketing dollars. I had a budget and I was putting money in and and doing a lot of Instagram work. Um, We were doing online meetings and things like that. So March comes along and I have a meeting with the provost and the provost says, based on us coming into this next phase of the pandemic, I'm going to let you know that we have three years to get this righted, to get the enrollment to where we want it to be. What we wanted ideally was 10 to 12 enrolled students with okay. a maximum of 15. And that's and a what mixture we, of first and second years? No, that would be per class. Okay, per class. sorry, I had it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a great question. It would be per class, per cohort, as we say. Um, and we have uh, eight students right now. Well, we have seven students in the class of 23 right now. So the provost said this to me. I was continuing to work on the budget. I finally got a meeting with the CFO. We reviewed the budget. And the next week, I got a request from the provost to meet. And he told me that they were canceling the program. Mm. So what I hope comes through in this is that there were decisions that are made outside of my engagement, my having been a part of them. Um, there uh, There were requests to examine the finances that didn't get met. And, um, and requests for support from other administrative functions that were challenging and didn't happen. And this, mm-hmm. is, this goes back to what I said before about at the, uh, at the inception of this program, it was not vetted through the administrative circles. Right. And the reason I'm being this honest and direct is because we are seeing so many academic, I'll speak just about academic programs, we're seeing them close. Yeah. And the problem is that the people who are implementing the programs and responsible for the students and the student experience are not always being engaged in the decision making. And it is coming from people who are looking at the budget and the bottom line in particular ways. But we are not in the meetings necessarily where we can have the conversations to speak in budgetary and monetary terms in order to remedy or rectify the what's happening. And that's a problem. Yeah, that's a really big disconnect. It is. Um, it is. And this is where I think that if, you know, a lesson to be learned from this is something that I see and I, I suggest to everybody who is a faculty member, get into the budgets, learn how budgets at your institution work, figure out who the the gatekeepers are for Mm -hmm. uh, decision-making, and ask questions, not about the academic side, not playing off of emotions, but think about how to ask the questions that are about the money and the bottom line. That's a different kind of language, and it's something that I think... um, we need to be doing more. And I, you know, it's something that I really think about a lot is that these institutions, they're businesses. 
They are. You know, they're not. <laughs> I mean, at some point you have to really grapple with the fact that um, you being a student is a paycheck for them in some ways. And um, it's hard to think about it in that way when you're really passionate, like when something's so intertwined with your passions to want to think about both sides of it, but you really have to. Um, so you, so when they told you that the program was closing, how much lay it longer until they announced it to the public? Was it very, very quick? It's a great question. Um, at my insistence, it was announced within a week. Okay. Oh, on your insistence. I like that where they were going to like, try to like leave it secret for enrollment purposes or something like that. So I will say that there were, uh, the factor that led to that was that April 1st was when all of the incoming students were required to deposit for the class of 24. Mm. So this decision was made in the week preceding that. So they needed to have time to, uh, to hear and process and understand that they had been accepted to a program that was no longer continuing. Right. Good for you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. That is the next part of my question. Um, I mean, I don't hold a degree, so I don't really think about when places like, um, Oregon College of Art, is that the name of the school? Uh, Oregon College of Art and Craft. I remember when that one closed, a lot of people, you know, because I'm so close in the craft community, we're posting about it. And the thing that I think about is, what does that mean when uh, you get your degree through a place that no longer exists? Um, it's a great question. Um, what happens is that institution, well, let's use OCAC, uh, Oregon okay. College of Art and Craft, as the example. Because that institution closed, what happens is, and I don't know who it is, but somebody in town is basically responsible for helping with any kind of transcripts or school records. Those right. become, those are very important. And so somebody is stewarding those. I have no idea who. Um, but I can tell you, like, for example, years and years later, if you go to the Western North Carolina archives, there are the academic records from Black Mountain College are there. Oh. And um, not all of them are available, but the ones where they've been able to reach a person, the person who, whose records they are or somebody related to them, those records are public and you can see what people took as their classes and things like that. But um, someone is taking care of that. Uh, Warren Wilson College will be responsible for any kind of, of registrarial transcript work or things like that that need to happen. Um, and the class of 23 will complete their degrees. And there is one student who elected to come to the program knowing that all of us, so all of the core faculty who are, are part of the program right now, and that's Ben Linyelt, Sarah Klugage, and Tom Martin, mm -hmm. all and Anna Helgeson, um, all of them will continue teaching through June. And okay. then in June, all of us leave, including Jesse Shires, who's the program manager, we all leave and our contracts are done or our work. We're not, con I'm not contracted, but their contracts are done. 
And then next year, Anna Helgeson will be working one-on-one with that one student to complete their degree under the supervision of the Dean of Research at Warren Wilson College. Oh, interesting. So they so badly wanted to be a part of the program that they still signed up knowing they'd only get one year of like this full experience that you have created. And then they continue on for their second year in a very different experience. Yes. Yes. Hmm. yes. Do so they they're a, co do they get a discount for the second year? <laughs> Sorry. I just have to I ask. don't know. I don't you know? know. I I advocated for it, but it's it out of certainly my hands. should be cheaper. I'm gonna advocate for that person. Just say I hope they're giving you a discount. I'm gonna say it. <laughs> I I I would hope so, but I like I said, it's out of it's out of my hands. That becomes a decision of the CFO. Now the interim CFO and we have an interim president of the college and the provost. Right. So it becomes their decision. <sighs> How are you doing? I mean, I feel like it's <laughs> it must not be fun to think about, but also you must be so proud of what you've done. I mean, five years, it's a lot of work. I'm today I'm okay. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because I was listening to, um, I, one of the people I follow on Instagram is chef Jenny Dorsey and she does a lot of, of DEIA work through food. And, oh, okay. and um, she mentioned this person named, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, but Ogi Ogas. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's a neuroscientist and he's written, he's co-written a book on um, the dark horse and achieving success and fulfillment and things like that. And listening to that has been helpful in reframing, um, reframing this for myself. Right. But um, what I'm proud of is what the students and, and, and all of my colleagues and, and the core faculty and the workshop faculty and the teaching fellows and the mentors have achieved in um, opening up a space for really different kinds of uh, craft research to take place. And right. that's what I'm really proud of, you know, that, that, there are different kinds of things people are doing that don't just slot into the structures and systems that have been put in place. So they're not having to write about the same things that everybody is writing about all the time or write about it in the same way. They actually have the tools to advocate for different ways of expressing what, what's going on, different ways of bringing together their craft-making experience with now their newfound research and writing and communication skills. So it's about giving tools to people to do what they need to do to find their voice. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, for the faculty and all the educators, you know, for all of us to have a chance to really think through what does it mean to teach? What does it mean to teach collaboratively? And what does it mean to build a new program Um, that's been the exciting part for me. Yeah. Have you thought about, um, well, of course you've thought about it. Sorry. That's a dumb thing to say, but do you have any real idea of like what you'll transition to next? Like, do you have something in mind or are you kind of just. And here is where we wrap up today's episode. 
To hear more of my conversation with Namita Gupta Wiggers, visit patreon.com slash value to become a patron and gain access to this exclusive audio. We talk about what's next for Namita. We touch on grant writing. The discussion meanders in a really lovely way. Don't miss out. Perceived Value is a podcast recorded and produced by me, Sarah Rachel Brown. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Perceived Value. Stream us directly from our website at perceivedvaluedpodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Just don't forget to rate and review us. Thanks for listening.